Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. When it comes to behavior plans, my favorite thing to talk about are replacement behaviors. I so often see these missing from a behavior plan. Not only do we need to identify those replacement behaviors, but we need to figure out a systematic and effective way to teach those skills. We can't just cross our fingers and hope. We need to provide that direct instruction. Well, I was especially excited about today's guests on the podcast because we are talking replacement behaviors. You guessed it. Today, I'm chatting with Danielle Lindquist and Amanda Wilson. Danielle is a BCBA and special education teacher consultant. Amanda is also a BCBA as well as a nationally certified school psychologist. Today, Danielle, Amanda, and I are talking about a trauma-informed approach to teaching replacement behaviors. Both Danielle and Amanda have a lot of experience working with children with autism that have a history of trauma or other mental health disorders. Danielle and Amanda share some special considerations that we want to be aware of when formulating our behavior plan and figuring out how we are teaching replacement behaviors. This episode is filled with so many great strategies and so many great suggestions. I really think you are going to learn a lot. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hi, Amanda and Danielle. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello. How are you? I'm good. We're very happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So today we've got the whole team on board because we're talking about a really important topic. We're talking about replacement behaviors, which is 
really one of my favorite things to talk about. I kind of, I always say it's like the secret sauce of a behavior plan. And if you don't have it, your behavior plan's not going to work. But we're going to kind of take a different twist on it today, which I'm really, really looking forward to, is we're going to talk about teaching those replacement skills specifically for kids with a history of trauma. So why is this so important to consider? Well, Sasha, you know, we have uh, a good long history of working with students who, um, one, have identified educational disabilities, but two, have experienced significant trauma. And what we have found is that that path to generalization is often much more difficult when it comes to teaching those new replacement skills and those more long-term skills as well. And we've noticed there's there's differences in how we need to teach them, in what we need to teach them, and then again in that performance or those generalization components. And so we often hear in regards to students with trauma or who have experienced trauma that um, they can tell me what they should have done afterwards. They um, know what is expected of them. Uh, they can do it in this setting, but not in this setting or in this situation or not that situation. And what it really comes down to is that lack of muscle memory for that new response and that lack of understanding of how explicit we actually need to be in the teaching of those skills and in the contriving of the opportunities to practice those skills and in that repetitive practice, practice, practice of those skills. Um, and so that's one of those um, big differences that we have noticed and why we are actually really passionate about the concept of teaching skill uh, replacement skills as well. And I think another part is, you know, why it becomes so overwhelming for a lot of educators is you're really getting into the you know, science of the brain and the mental health world, which, you know, we're not mental health experts, nor do we claim to be, but when you're talking about a student with a history of trauma, um, you know, and kids come with different levels of trauma, we think of like the big T's and the little T's, um, you know, their, their baseline, their new normal is survival for some of these kids and really acknowledging that their brains are wired a little bit differently. And like Amanda said, their muscle memory is that fight, flight, or freeze. So, you know, they're really responding as if their environment is, you know, often unpredictable and scary and dangerous, even though we may think we have all the amazing support set up and what could go wrong, right? But with that toxic stress and, you know, abuse and all the cortisol and all of those good things, that really um, impacts executive functioning, which is another one of our favorite topics to talk about, because those executive functioning skills are so, so important for learning new replacement skills and how to generalize and problem solve and initiate and all of that. Um, and so all this stuff ends up meshing together and, you know, it, it teaching replacement skills to kids with trauma isn't always as clean looking. And I put quotes around that as it might be with, you know, a, a more typically developing student. Yeah. And when you think about it from like that bird's eye perspective is, you know, kids that have a history of trauma, their learning history is not, you know, is going to be very different than a child that doesn't have a history of trauma. You know, what they've experienced in the past isn't going to be so, like you said, nice and neat and streamlined. And we're going to have to account for that in our teaching practices. Mm -hmm. And often we find, you know, it takes a lot longer because of that um, that learning history, like you said, in that, you know, that lack of predictability and consistency and a lot of what has been modeled for them in terms of 
replacement skills has been modeled either incorrectly or, you know, in a negative way. And so we're, we're having to spend a little bit longer trying to undo that and create a new muscle memory for, for an alternative behavior. And I think it's important too, that we're systematic in how we are teaching those skills and how we're planning to teach them. Um, because, you know, if you think about it in the, the terms of, you know, you're conducting your functional behavior assessment, you've identified your setting events and your antecedents, and you've defined that behavior, that behavior chain, and you've, you've got your hypothesis statement, and you sit down as a team to talk about what that replacement behavior should be that meets that same need for them. And Sometimes you're in that pickle of, um, you know, what the, the team wants might be that kind of really ideal behavior, but what that student actually needs is something in, in between what they're doing now and that ideal behavior. And then there's that, always that long-term goal too. Um, and so what we frequently find ourselves talking about is how we need to start thinking from the beginning um, stages about what the, all of those additional skills that we need to plan to teach right away so that we're, we know that when they master skill A, we're going to move on to skill B. And when they work on that, then we're going to go on to skill C. And so we've already got that mapped out and planned because we've already identified that, yes, we need them to raise their hand, but we also need them to learn to wait and to attend and to work independently. Um, and those other kind of skills, you know, academically, but likewise, we probably need to be working on some coping skills for these students concurrent with whatever other skills we're working on. And so really, we, we find ourselves kind of preaching on that, of that idea of identify all of those additional skills, all of those needs from the beginning, so that we don't just kind of say, oh, we taught the replacement skill, we're good, because we're not good. There's so much more that those students need to learn, and they're not going to pick it up in their environment naturally, um, the same as another student. Yeah, it's all those missing prerequisites that we, you know, we can't just jump to, it's like jumping to reading a chapter book when you don't have sight word vocabulary yet. Exactly. So what does that look like? You kind of mentioned this whole idea of a team sitting down together and kind of mapping that out. Is that kind of the process you follow within how you run FBAs and like thinking about how we identify these prerequisites and coping skills that are needed to be taught? Yes and no. Um, so I, I tend to do a little bit of both. Um, I really like to do my interviews um, more individually versus in a team setting um, for that indirect method of that FBA, just because one parents or caregivers aren't always um, as comfortable sharing those details um, in a group setting. And two, sometimes the team wants to kind of get stuck in that cycle of admiring the problem rather than <laughs> focusing on, you know, just the observable facts and um, capturing that information so that we can plan accordingly. Um, but then when we get to that team meeting where we're kind of reviewing the results of the FBA and I'm bringing my draft to the team, um, yes, there is that discussion on, you know, I've kind of tried to come with a, a proposed replacement behavior, but it's a team decision. It's a team discussion. It's got to meet the needs of what the classroom team can do. Um, it has to meet the needs of the student. And so sometimes there really is that kind of back and forth um, negotiation, if you will, on what um what the student needs and what the team needs um, and where they're willing to meet in the middle in regards to that. And sometimes we have to get more creative because, yes, they probably do have hand raising, for example, in their repertoire, and they probably do know how and when they should. But again, that's not necessarily the same payoff as um, the problem behavior in its um, efficiency or its um, quality. And so Sometimes we really have to do some brainstorming about how we can meet that need 
at that kind of that same level what we can do to change the environment um, so that that student is still getting that high quality payoff, but in a more appropriate way um, with that discussion about how we can shape that into something more appropriate over time. I love that idea of shaping and starting with, you know, something that's closer to their repertoire and something that will still provide that high quality reinforcement, which is is really tricky with replacement behaviors because a lot of times negative behaviors, they work really well. <laughs> right. The more provocative, the better they work, the, the harder they are to ignore for sure. Whenever we do trainings, we like to put um, visuals in our competing pathways, um, you know, visuals, huge fan in general, um, but we really feel like it helps staff understand that replacement skill is is kind of like our stepping stone or our benchmark to get to that desired behavior, um, but also I find that it's really important to have that conversation about comparing the child to him or herself at that moment rather than the other peers um, because they they might not ready to be, they might not be ready for that desirable behavior um, that their other peers may be doing just because of their history. So we like to use, you know, the classic example of the kid hanging on the teacher's leg. You know, you're hypothesizing it's maintained by attention. And, you know, the classic example of a replacement skill would be to teach him again to raise his hand. But in considering a student's history, and that's why that, that background piece of an F functional behavioral assessment is so important, um, you know, if they have a, a history of neglect or, you know, being left alone or, you know, no one interacting with them, raising a hand still might not meet that need, even if you're paying it off immediately. So for that child, it may be that you teach them to come up to you and tap you on the shoulder because that provides more of an immediate connection, but it's not as interfering as hanging on the leg. Um, so really looking at, you know, where that child is at developmentally, um, we always want to consider independence in that long-term goal, but knowing that they, they might not be ready for that yet. And that's such great advice, honestly, for any child, like you should be looking, I mean, yes, as behavior analysts, we do, but you know, we want to look at, at the whole picture and, and, and that child is a person and a human that is seeking a need that needs to be met. Absolutely. Definitely. And we always want to consider that risk versus the benefit of any, not only the, the replacement skill that we're teaching or the long-term skill, um, but any of those practices that we're putting in place. And that's even more important when um, it comes to uh, working with students with trauma. For example, the risk versus benefit of, you know, an, uh, an, using extinction for an attention maintained behavior for a student who's experienced trauma and significant neglect might be significantly more dangerous than for a student with autism. And we want to consider that. Um, can you, can you explain that a little bit and explain what like attention extinction, that's a mouthful. Um, can you explain what that means and maybe talk through a hypothetical example for those sure. that aren't familiar with that term? Sure. Um, so, um, if you have a, a young lady who is um, engaging in some tantrum behaviors that uh, your FBA is um, indicating or supporting a hypothesis of attention is what is maintaining that, that high quality attention of all the comfort um, and all of the, um, you know, even maybe the, some of the verbal control battles that might be um, resulting as in, uh, um, after that student engages in those behaviors or during and um, that student has a history of trauma, just trying to simply turn that light switch off and withhold attention for those behaviors is probably going to 
be very, very stressful for that individual. Um, and so you want to be um, careful about that because you can't just, you know, simply turn your back and not attend to that behavior, not attend to that student because that is a need, that need for attention. They have that history of having maybe been, you know, locked in a closet or left alone for, you know, days on end. Um, and so that might bring back a lot of um, memories and fears and anxiety. And uh, we don't want to purposefully induce the, that. Uh, so we want to be very considerate and, you know, explicit in what we're doing. So extinction for an attention maintained behavior for a student with a history of trauma probably is not going to be the safest or greatest idea. Um, what we could do instead is um, we can minimize the quality of that attention. Um, we could potentially, um, things that I've written in the past into plans are that we are going to provide comfort statements, but on a time-based interval, but we are not going to engage in that back and forth of that verbal um, argument. Um, we're not going to meet demands that might be being made, um, but we are going to make those statements that you're safe, you are okay, we are with you. We're going to stay in proximity to that student, um, but we're going to minimize the quality. But again, if we're only responding to the behaviors, we're not gonna get nearly as far as if we are actually taking the time to teach new skills to that student. Um, and so that's a big part of what we often train on is how do we actually do that? Because I think that oftentimes teachers think they are and they, they are to an extent, but you know we have behavior analysis as our background um, and we know that there is a lot of research behind behavior skills training and there's research behind teaching interactions. And so those are the two um, methodologies that we spend a lot of time teaching our staff to use to actually teach these skills to the students in an explicit manner. I hear a lot, and I wonder if you guys hear this. Oh, well, you know, Johnny, Johnny knows how to raise his hand. He just doesn't want to. Right. That can't do, won't do kind of. Yep. And a lot of times we find that, you know, especially for kids with trauma, they're just like adults, right? If, if our coffee spills and we're late to work and, you know, the dog runs away, our level of frustration tolerance for that day is going to be a lot smaller than if all of those triggers didn't stack up beforehand. Um, so that's the same with our kids. You know, if they're coming in with all of this baggage from home, then their their ability to tolerate stressful events during the day or in the you know context of their um, you know the math class, for example, it's going to look a lot different day to day. And that's why a lot of times we'll see they have the skill or they exhibit the skill one day, but the next day they're not doing it. Or, you know, we'll hear, well, he's done it before. So he, he knows how to do it. He just doesn't want to, but really that there's a good chance that that is at play. Um, and they're, um, you know, lacking the ability to generalize that skill or meaning it hasn't been taught in a systematic enough way. Um, and again, that level of tolerance is, is a lot different day to day and hour to hour, which is why, you know, we always, always recommend teaching self-regulation skills in conjunction with that replacement skill because they need to be somewhat calm to be able to use that skill as well, right? You know, life is about being <laughs> being calm, right? Um, so we, we typically teach those um, 
concurrently. And they have that muscle memory, remember, for those inappropriate behaviors or those what they've used to get to maintain their safety and to get out of situations, perhaps that um, have been scary. And so again, until we replace that and build the muscle memory for the new response, we're not going to see that generalizing across settings and situations. And even if you just, you know, recently teach a replacement behavior, think of how many opportunities that child has has had to utilize a negative behavior and receive reinforcement for it. You know, and then sometimes we expect, oh, we taught a replacement behavior last week. It should be fine. Well, we have years that we're likely competing with. It's not just going to be this like, you know, flipping a switch. Right. And one thing that we do to help staff kind of recognize that is we ask them to develop a hierarchy looking at when they can use the skill, when they can sometimes use the skill, and when they can never use the skill. Um, And we use that to help guide our teaching lessons so that we're contriving those opportunities. First, we're teaching that skill in isolation, obviously, but then we're contriving opportunities to practice that skill in the presence of those situations where they're usually successful. We're building that muscle memory and that success. Then we move on to those ones where they're somewhat successful already and work on that. And once we've mastered those, then we move toward those more difficult situations and then to the natural situations that are just occurring in this in the, the classroom, in the school environment. And that's one way that we teach and support and ask staff to really kind of think about how long and how difficult it is to, you know, build that new history for that new skill um, that overcomes the previous history for the inappropriate behavior. Oh, I love that. Can you talk me through an example of that? Like what that would look like and what kind of, you know, the context you put around each of those different phases? Sure. So a lot of times we'll see, you know, it it might start with that one-on-one interaction. And this typically might occur with a social worker or in a a counseling session of the student gets pulled out. um, And then, you know, that conversation comes up. Well, we were working on this in small group, but they're still not doing it outside at recess. And if you look at both of those um, environments in those two contexts, those are completely different, right? One-on-one in a very nice, safe, you know, calming setting versus recess, which is chaotic and unstructured. And I don't even like doing recess duty myself. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, really we use, um, teaching interactions for our older students who are, having that ability to have more of that conversational interaction Um, and teaching interactions is actually an extension from the popular behavior skills training, which is um, your four steps of instructing, modeling, rehearsing, and feedback. And so the difference is that teaching interactions being an expansion of um, actually adds on two extra steps. So it starts with the identification and labeling of the skill and then providing that rationale for it. And then when you run through all of these skills, you're, you're really doing a task analysis of the skill and thinking about what are all of the different people that we can involve, the different environments that we can involve, the different times we can practice this so that we are getting that generalization. Um, so it may look like us working on the skill with a student. Um, maybe we're working on you know conflict resolution and I'm working with that student one-on-one. Then when they master that skill in that individual setting, I may bring in a a peer for the next session. And I want to be conscious about what might that next step be. If I bring in a peer who, you know, typically doesn't have a history of good interactions with that student, that's going to flop. So maybe I bring in a peer that that student is likely to be successful with. 
Um, then I might bring in an adult for that next session because I want that student to be able to exhibit that skill with not only peers, but adults in the environment as well, um, if they're in proximity, for example. Um, then we might say, all right, we are going to, um, in five minutes, we're gonna go out for recess. Let's talk about things that might happen out there and we're going to review what we want to do. And then we might prompt them right before that, hey, this is the time to use that skill. And then we gradually fade that and fade that over time so it becomes more natural. Hey, remember, recess is in 20 minutes. Let's review. So you're doing a little bit of priming. Um, another example, we had a student that, you know, had a meltdown when he was given a dull pencil. So we worked on coping skills and isolation um, and we would practice, hey, I'm going to hand you a dull pencil. What are you going to do? Right. And then, all right, in five minutes, I'm going to give you a dull pencil. What are we going to do? Remember? And then, hey, uh, math time is this morning. There might be a dull pencil there. There might not be. And then eventually getting to, you know, I'm not giving any any advance notice and there's a dull pencil there, but because we have practiced it in so many different situations in a systematic way, they're now seeing the dull pencil and, hey, I now have the muscle memory to know what to do in this natural environment without any other prompts. And, of course, that independence is, is what we want to plan for from the beginning. And so keeping in mind that example of a student and the coping skills, right? The pencil may have been one of those low-level stressors we identified on the the, on the hierarchy. Um, we may have several others that we're also working through. And th from there, then it might be some of those higher-level stressors, um, those middle-of-the-ground ones that might be, you know, his milk is warm um, or he didn't get the lunch that he wanted from um, for lunch that day uh, because they were out. And so we would then work through those, making sure that he was practicing using those coping skills in the presence of those stressors. And it goes from that very contrived and set up to here, I'm going to hand you a dull pencil to that come on over to, um, to the math center and there's a dull pencil. Um, and so we find that oftentimes, you know, it's that one and done or there's, you know, they teach it a few times and they just expect them to get it. But with our kids with trauma, we really, really have to just that repetition, 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 and that extensive practice is what makes that difference. And we're really just, you know, as you're talking through these examples, you can just see we want to we want to set it up so our kids can be as successful as possible. And when we kind of break it down into each kind of achievable piece, achievable piece, you know, it's just going to be so much more likely for our kids to be successful, which is reinforcing for our own behavior as the educator, but then for our kids as well as continuing to engage in those correct responses. Exactly. Awesome. Oh my gosh. I could like, I could talk about this for like five hours, guys. <laughs> well, I love this. I think it's, you know, it's really interesting to kind of you know, these are obviously best practices for all kids, but the special considerations and thinking about the learning history and the muscle memory and things like that, that you've, you've brought up about, you know, kids with trauma is, is so important to consider. And, you know, Amanda, I thought that was a great point about doing those indirect assessments in private one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so we can really determine, you know, which kids might have that history, um, and make sure that we can address that as educators. Yeah, you know, you know, from my perspective, I, I always assume there is a history of something because obviously we don't know and I would rather be cautious and, you know, over teach than under teach and, and consider things that, you know, 
may not be happening in the student's life, but I want to, you know, make sure that we're doing this in a meaningful way and that, you know, I'm covering all of my bases for this student. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Danielle and Amanda, so much. This was um, such a great topic to kind of review. And I hope this really, you know, sparks a little light in people's heads on, on, on reframing the way we're thinking about, you know, reacting and responding to negative behaviors and always adding in that, like, that secret sauce, that replacement behavior. You've got to, got to have that and, and having that systematic approach to teaching it. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.